Good morning, everybody. How you doing today? Good to see you guys. Come on, that's exciting. First 1145 service. Man, normally church is getting over, but we just starting. We're just getting digging in. And uh, all the other churches are getting to those other restaurants. They're, they're warming it up for you. And then you're going to get there and, and uh, take it over uh, right after. So you're not even missing that. Uh, man, so exciting. We had a great first service, great second service. And now third service is going to be the best of them all. Yeah. Because after, you know, Nikki did a great job preaching and then I did the, the second one. She did the first one. I did the second one. And then by the third service in church, you know, you're going to get Jake unfiltered. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? It's like, you get me after nine o'clock, you know, crazy time, right? I could say or do anything, you never know. And uh, that probably just means that I'll um, mumble or something. But I do want to kick this off with something important because, you know, I think in church it's important that we, we honor God, we, we serve each other, we, we love, you know, one another and all that. But it's also important to speak truth. And the truth is that Michigan needs to beat Washington tomorrow night. <laughs> In Jesus' name. Thank you. I'm ministering to some people in the back. Be blessed, my brother. Uh, I've coined a term this week. It's called a shadow championship. And what this means is when your primary rival loses in the national championship, then you win a shadow championship. So as Oregon Ducks, if the Washington Huskies lose, we become shadow champions. Come on. And you go, that's kind of gross. I know, but I'm still growing in my faith, you know, growing in my maturity in the Lord. Uh, all joking aside, uh, I'm excited to be here today. Um, God is moving in a really powerful way at Joy Church and in, in our lives individually. And as we jump into this brand new year, we're taking time to do this series called Minimal, where we talk about making space, making space, not so that we can be a better version of ourselves, not, not so that we can achieve 17% uh, more efficiency in 2024 than we did in, in 2023 but rather making space so that we can be who God's called us to be and do what he's called us to do. And we're going we're gonna to kind of take on these ideas from a fresh perspective and a new perspective because we talk about minimalism, we talk about rest, and we talk about making space in our culture. That's actually something that we hear about a lot. Oh, you need to take space for yourself. You need to work on balance. You need to, uh, you know, Marie Kondo uh, your, your, your garage or whatever and say, does this bring me joy? And the problem is everything brings me joy at some level, right? Even like the Washington Huskies losing, right? It's not my team winning, but it brings me joy in a sadistic way. Uh, but we, we know this idea of making space, but it's not for a selfish perspective or for a selfish reason or a self-centered reason we're talking about it in this series. Though it will have uh, real meaning in our lives personally, but we're talking about it so that God can invade our space and let his kingdom come and his will be done. But here's the beautiful thing is when we give our life to the kingdom of God and to the full-hearted pursuit of him and his purposes and plans for our life, we tap into what Jesus said. He said, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it again. There's a paradox of the spiritual life, a paradox of the Christian faith, that it is not in the service of self that we find the ultimate fulfillment for ourselves, but it is actually in the service of others. And it's laying our life down to be part of the kingdom of God and making space for him. So that's what we're talking about over the next couple of, of, of weeks. But today we're going to talk specifically about margins. And margins are not really the most exciting uh, part of things. You know, margins are the, the, the sidelines of the field. Margins are the white space around the words on a paper. But margins absolutely matter in life. They matter tremendously. 
And the thing that I've found is you can tell the people that really care about margins at Thanksgiving, they reveal themselves because there's two types of people in the world. You've got the type of people who get their food all together and they create sovereign nations and they have borders and border guards and there's men with machine guns guarding the mashed potatoes from moving over into the turkey land and, and the turkey land is guarding against the cranberry sauce. You know those kind of people, right? So just real quick, how many of you that's you, right? You're like, I got this, this thing locked down. You know what I mean? Uh, people will be shot if the food crosses lines, you know, and you have it locked down. And then there's the other type of people who are like, everything goes and we'll put sprinkles on top. How many of you, is that you, right? Awesome. I knew the 1145 service was going to have more of those people, right? Early 815 service, we're like, sovereign borders in the food, you know, but 1145 is like, mix it all up, you know, let's get crazy. Well, I am a sovereign border in my food type of person. Uh, and here's the deal. You want the type of people who keep their food all in order to do your taxes, but you want you guys to plan vacations. You know what I mean? With, with uh, messing up those, those margins. Uh, once we kind of identify uh, those types of people, it helps in life. But in all seriousness, margins in our, in our life and in our relationship with God appear to be one of the least exciting, but they're uh, incredibly important uh, there's a musician, and I'm sure many of you who have a well-developed palette of music will know who this is, but Sting. Anybody like Sting? Sting, uh, I grew up listening to The Police and, and Sting, and uh, one of the guys that, that I love is his music. Uh, and uh, he once said in an interview, the space between the notes is more important, or as important, if not more important, than the actual notes themselves. And I think any artist recognizes that it is not uh, it is not the work of a master to fill a canvas with just pure quantity of paint. It is rather in the expression and the differentiation of colors and space and all of that and the use of margins and boundaries and, and order that allows art to flourish. It's the same with music. It's, it's the same in so many uh, types of, of things in life. And even in our spiritual life and in our souls, Jesus gives us great insight into this. You know, Jesus when he was on planet earth walking around, uh, we, we, we tend to, I think, almost turn him into an idealized version, but he modeled for us what it looks like to live a spirit-empowered life. And I want you to listen to this in Luke chapter 5, when, when Jesus gives us a, a look into his perspective on space and margins and stepping away from the crowd. It says in Luke chapter 5, verse 15, but despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. Now I want to pause for a second before we move into the salient verse. And I want us to look at the lay of the land here. Jesus is doing everything right. He's having success. If you were to just translate this into modern times, into our way of thinking, we would think, well, more is better, bigger is better, taller, greater, faster. Like anything that maximizes that which we're trying to accomplish must be the thing. But, but Jesus does something very interesting here is that even as people are being healed, people are responding to the message of the kingdom, people are coming to Jesus, there's lives being transformed and his ministry is effective and successful. He does the opposite of what most of us as well-trained Westerners in 2024 would do. And it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. This is the life verse of hunters and campers, right? They're like, well, I'm often withdrawing to the wilderness, you know, uh, for prayer. I always ask hunters, I'm always like, did you get it? I get something? And they're like, no. And I'm like, so what, why did you go? 
but they love it. But then I asked, was it you, Tim? I think I asked you. I was like, did you get it? Get something? He was like, yeah. So this is a real hunter among us, right? The rest of you, Guy Harris, where's Guy? He's always, I'm always like, Guy, did you get it? Nah. He just loves it though, right? He's living this verse. He knows I love him. All right, he'll get something next year, but he won't share with me. But Jesus often withdraws, even in the midst of his success, even in the midst of where everything that you'd think he's trying to do, and it is what he's trying to do to usher in the kingdom, when it's coming to fruition and when things are just starting to go the way that it's supposed to go, why then does he pull away? Well, it's because he understands this issue of margins. He understands that the source of his success and the strength of his life and even the fulfillment of his soul is not in his endeavors coming to fruition, but it is in the relationship that he possesses with his father. And this is interesting. If you read C.S. Lewis' book, The Weight of Glory, he begins to talk about rewards and the proper reward. You see, a man who goes to fight for the purpose of getting money, we call that man a mercenary. But a man who goes to fight because he's defending his homeland or his nation is a patriot. Why do we celebrate the patriot and we kind of look askew at the mercenary? And it's, here's why. It's because the, the reward of a soldier doing his duty, that's something that we celebrate, right? Even like when you go to the spring game uh, at the University of Oregon and we often celebrate the troops and we think, hey, thank you to the troops. And we do thank our troops because we recognize that someone who's sacrificing themselves or serving, we even call it their armed service or military service. Are you following with me here? We recognize that because it is done for love of country, because it is done for love of my fellow uh, person that I'm, that I'm living in this nation with, and I'm defending my family and our way of life and our values and our vision of what this nation is, we value that individual. But the person that says, I just do it for the paycheck, we go, ooh, that's a little like, that's not good. We celebrate the, the groom and the bride, him in a beautiful tuxedo, her in a beautiful dress, pledging themselves in purity and honoring each other and, and now entering into the sanctity of intimacy in marriage. And we look at someone who sells themselves for that same sexual intimacy, but for the purpose of receiving a paycheck. And we call that something very different. So what's happening here? You go, well, it, this, is, this is helping us understand that there's something more valuable even than the thing itself or success in an abstract sense. And let me make this clear. In Jesus' ministry, he wasn't just trying to demonstrate, oh, I can heal the sick and I'll have the biggest church and I'll gather all these multitudes. He was demonstrating the actual prize that I'm here to get you guys into is a relationship with the Father. So if I sacrifice my relationship with the Father to have success, we've lost the plot. You guys following with me? Okay, I'm gonna get too unfiltered if you don't start amening. That maybe would challenge some people to not amen. And so Jesus withdraws, even from the place of his fruitfulness or effectiveness, he, he pulls into the margin spaces. I'm gonna relate to the Father because my actual prize and, and orientation of life is to my relationship with him. And that is the life source of how I do the things that I do. See, this is, a, this is a, a, an interesting thing when we find that the way we think or I think about rest and about margin and about withdrawing from my activity is that I tend to see, and I bet you do too, rest and prayer and meditation and spending time with Jesus and spending time in the presence of God. I tend to see that as the thing that charges me up so I can go back and do the real important work well. But I don't think Jesus thought of it that way. I think what he realized is that doing the real important work of rest allowed him to be effective in his work and activity. 
but work and activity was not the most important thing. So in our culture, what we find is that even though we are the most affluent and the most, uh, we're affluent, we have technology that's incredible. I've been playing around with some different AI things this week and just like getting it to, to write emails and different things. And I'm like, this is insane that this robot, this AI, which freaks me out a little bit. I don't know about you. I'm actually an AI today. Pastor Jake is at home. He's sick as a dog. <laughs> That's why I'm so handsome because I'm the, the fully uh, envisioned, but no, I'm kidding. I'm teasing. All right. Amen. 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 <laughs> but I was, I was just, it's, it's, it's astounding the level of technology, the ability to travel. Like Jack and I went to Texas in, in December and just the ability to jump on a plane and a couple hours later be in a completely different part of the country or jump on an airplane and be in Cabo San Lucas. How many of you know? Praise God for that. Like it's, it's an awesome thing that we have in our, in our time. And yet with all of our technological prowess, with all of our uh, affluence and our ability to travel because we have enough money and because most of us aren't, aren't trying to go and farm the food that we need to feed our family out of the, the dirt, because of this, you'd think that we would be very much at peace, and yet we are the most anxious and worried and hustled and hurried and bothered people uh, of, of all time. Like, those things are all at an all-time high. And I think it's this. I think it's because we, we have a problem with margins. You see, if we live in this culture that absolutely says going for the max in everything is so important. We're all about maximizing it. You know, get the, go, if you're going to work at a career, get to the top of the corporate ladder. If you're going to have a car, get the fastest, the best, the shiniest, the most luxurious. If you're going to have uh, a house, it needs to be the best on the street, the biggest. We live in a culture of maximization and we measure ourselves against even this idea that if I could maximize a little bit more than I should, Right? If I could be a little bit better at work, or I could be a little skinnier, or I could be better at playing the guitar, then I should absolutely do that. And it's not really the right pursuit of life. I remember when Bethany and I were getting ready to buy our, uh, our, our, our first home together, we went and we sat down in an office in Medford and we talked to this mortgage guy, and he's a really good guy. He still sends us a refrigerator magnet at like 17 years later or whatever. So he's very, he's definitely got that hustle going for him, but... We don't even live in Medford, but we still get a refrigerator magnet. And we sat down and uh, he said, all right, let's see how much house you can afford. And I kind of chuckled inside. I, I smiled at him and I'm like, okay, you know, but, but I'm, I'm thinking, bro, I know you're going to be more than happy for me to just absolutely empty out my pockets, you know, and empty out the bank. But Bethany and I, you know, in our head, we had this, this word. It's actually like a dirty word to most Americans and definitely to the federal government. <laughs> It starts with B, and it's the word budget. <laughs> Anybody get offended? You know, How many of you think that as a country we could probably get a little bit better with understanding that if you don't have the money, don't buy it, right? That was the SNL sketch version of econ economics. So in our head, we're thinking this guy would be happy for us if, if he said, well, Technically, you qualify to spend $4,000 a month, but the problem is we also like to do things like, you know, eat. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Now, that's a funny example, right? Let's see how much house you can afford. What's the max that you can, can get? I always used to think about us living in the nicest neighborhood in Medford with absolutely no furniture, you know what I mean, in a house that had no heat, you know, just a funny idea. But that is actually a picture of what we do in almost every area of life. We try to maximize everything. Let's maximize our relationships. Let's maximize 
everything. And what if that's the wrong pursuit? What if instead of maximizing that, we said, God, I actually want to get to a place where there's enough space in my life where you can show up and do things outside of my plan and my purposes and my agenda. Margins, though, are not just spiritually valuable, they're personally valuable, practically valuable, because what happens when things don't go according to plan? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when you get hurt? What happens when, you, uh, when the economy drops or something happens to someone in your family? This is when margins show up so valuably. Margins are there for when you get pressed. Margins are there for when things don't go according to plan. Like, I don't think a lot about the shoulder of the road until I need it. Anybody else? I was in a rock band uh, for a, a couple years and uh, we did some very mediocre touring and we were like so such a poverty band that we were our own roadies, right? So lest you think of any glorious rock and roll, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, it wasn't like that at all. We were, we were like Leonard Skinner, but we were just Lynn. I mean, there was nothing cool about it. So we had an old Suburban that my buddy owned and we had a trailer and we were doing some, some gigs up and down the West Coast, played some, some Christian schools, heavy metal, you know, anyways, it, it was lame. So <clears throat> I'm in the band and my buddy Alex was our bass player. And how many of you know, and I love like Jeff Pleward, I don't know if he's still here. He's a great bass player. Ed plays bass here, wonderful guys. But in my experience, you don't let the bass player drive. And I'll tell you why. So Alex, you know, he, he was like, oh, guys, I'll, I'll drive, you know. We're pretty tired. Aaron and Natalie and I were pretty tired. We'd been schlepping gear and all that. And he's like, I, I got it, I'll drive. And I remember kind of dozing off and then waking up and the car's going, do, 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 and it wasn't like a beat the drummer was doing. Alex was completely asleep, head down on his chest. And, and uh, Alex, if you're ever listening to this, you deserve it because you're a terrible driver. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we wake up and we scream. Now, I learned from my mom what you scream in the car when you're scared. Because my whole life, whenever my dad would do anything that she deemed unfit for the road, she would scream, Jesus, 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 Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever heard grandma do that, Evie? <laughs> yeah. I've only heard my mom cuss a couple times, and most of them have been when I was driving in the car. <laughs> but she would cry out to Jesus. It showed really where her faith was. And so I think I screamed, Jesus! <laughs> in the car. And I was very grateful in that moment to have margin, to have shoulder on the side of the road. Because we've all driven by and seen those big divots in the, the rails along the side of the road where somebody didn't use the margin correctly and they went right into the barrier or went off the barrier or whatever. And I want you to get an idea in your life that God wants to give us this gift of some space so that when things don't go according to plan, you're going to be okay. But margins have not just a, a near-term effect, they also produce longevity and clarity. One of the things that we try to do in ministry as a, as a church staff and an eldership is we, 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 we try to build structures and systems for ourselves and for those that are serving in the church that are for a hundred years, not just like what's the most efficient thing we could do even right now. And, and I have lots of examples that I'm not going to go into, but we're looking at things saying we want to do this for a long time not do it well for a short time. Some people are living their life and they're just a shooting star. They're going to burn out, right? They're going to look really, really good and then come, come down. That's not the kind of life we want to build in the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. At the bottom of all of this and all the pragmatic and, and personal benefits of building margin into your life and making some space to rest and breathe and setting aside some time and time for God, the thing that is actually at stake here 
is the most valuable asset of all, which is your soul. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? The implied answer to this is no. I want you to stop for a second and realize that Jesus is kind of throwing this out there. What if this vision of the ideal life that we're all bombarded with constantly on social media, and I'll, and I'll talk about this more in just a second, but this idea of this perfect life, this maximized life, this fully efficient, fully realized, actualized life, what, what if we actually got it, but if the cost of that is that you lose your soul, do you even enjoy the prize that you won? It turns to ash in your mouth the minute you take a taste because if you get to the top of the ladder, but you lose your soul in the process, you didn't win, you lost, right? And you think about this world that we live in, it's interesting because we don't think of it in these terms, but it absolutely is this way, that if you get on social media, if you're on Instagram, you're basically looking into a creepy robotic re reflective mirror, and it's beginning to reflect back to you your deep desires and passions and pursuits, because if you know how these things work, what actually Facebook and, and uh, you're all going to be really creeped out by this, but there is like incredibly smart computer programs that are looking at everything you search, everything you talk about. Oh, we don't listen to you. Yeah, they do. <laughs> everything you talk about, uh, everything that you, you, you look at online, uh, and then they begin to map out and plan, well, wh what is the thing this individual is after? Are they looking for a refrigerator? Have you ever like talked about taking a vacation to somewhere weird, and then the next day you get an ad for it, okay? Has that ever happened to anybody else? Okay. Uh, when, you're, when you're on Instagram or whatever, you're looking at different things, and it begins to build a profile of you. And I've actually studied this uh, as a marketer, even looking into it. You know, there's, I think, multiple thousand of data points that those algorithms collect on all of us, and they have basically a reflection of our desire, which is gross for many reasons. But it's an interesting thing because what it does then is it then says, hey, let me show you what you need to be the best version and to get the most fulfilling thing and to, to get to that, the, the, the top of the mountain, so to speak. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I play the piano. I'm a mu musician and I've played piano for many, many years and, and I, I'm pretty good at it. Like I'm decent. I'm not a total beginner. I'm not a master, but I'm just, you know, pretty good at it. And the other day I was talking to Bethany and I was like, oh, oh, I'm just like frustrated. She's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, I mean, I, I, I need to practice. Like, I, I, if I would just like practice an hour a day, like, I, then I'd be good at the piano. And my wife did the most wonderful thing. She laughed in my face. <laughs> How many of you know you need somebody that loves you enough to laugh in your face? Because what she was laughing at was realizing Jake is chasing a, a fantasy. Like, I am a good piano player today. I can sit down and... I, I'm good enough to make other people think I'm better than I am. How about that, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not Lori Harpan, but I can make some, some noise. You know what I mean? On that piano. And what my wife was, was trying to slap me across the face in the nicest, most loving way is that I was allowing the mirror of, on Instagram seeing all these people playing jazz and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, well, if I just had that $79 course and if I just had this and if I just had that and if I could just like practice this much and I could do that, then I could get to this place where then I would be fulfilled and I'd be happy. And that's one example when the reality is I can sit down today and play and worship and enjoy the art that my father has given to me in that space. And it's fine if I want to get better, but my joy and fulfillment is not in my perfecting in some unattainable standard or some fantastic thing. 
And so these algorithms, they're always constantly showing us advertising, pulling us in. Even we do this to each other. We present to each other what we think is the ideal version of our life. So other people will think, oh, well, they're happier. They're doing it right. And what it creates is this great hunger inside of us that I must not be enough. I must need to do more. I must need to try harder. I must need to like achieve something. Is anybody else getting anything out of this? Because I like this sermon, but, but I'm the one saying it. So and like it, it creates this like hunger in us. But the problem is when we drink of that well and we go, well, I'm going to get that course. I'm going to go for the flattest abs that I can possibly have. The guy said, if I spend the $17 and I do these 13 exercises, then my abs won't jiggle when I brush my teeth anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but let me ask you this. Who do you know in our society that got to the top of the mountain? Who? Who bought the course? Jesus, that's the right answer to every question in church. Thank you. Who, who, who's the one that bought the course and, 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 and they, they, they hit total self-actualization? I'm completely at peace. I am, I've lost my anxiety, my worry. Once I climbed that fitness mountain. Because the problem is you turn about 40 and all of a sudden what used to work doesn't start work as well anymore. You know what I'm saying? People are always like trying to lose weight. I mean, a lot of you must be losing it because I'm finding it. <laughs> people, are, people are like, what's going on? You, 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 you chase fitness and you find out that age will take away all of what the course gave to you eventually. You chase money and eventually you lose the ability. Like Solomon, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about this. He had all the sex. He had, all the, he had the flattest abs. King of Israel. He had all the gold, treasure, pleasure, money, relationships, power. And what does he say? It was all vanity. I got everything that I wanted. And at the end, what I realized is that this was not enough. So what does he say? Fear God. There is another target for life. And you go, I thought we were talking about margins. No, we are talking about margins because when we don't have margins, what is being demonstrated is that we believe the lie. I can have it all. I can have it all. I can have perfect marriage. I can have perfect career. I can give 110% as oxymoronic as that is because it's not possible to give more than 100%. And actually what, what we're exchanging in our very consumeristic pursuit of more and maximization is we're exchanging our soul. We are actually, even if we were hypothetically able to get to the end of the road of chasing whatever desire that we have currently, we would find that we had exchanged that which was most valuable. So in light of that, let's talk about three margins that we need to create. The first one is this, the margin of focus. Focus is very simple. It's about eliminating options, getting rid of things. I, I don't know about you, but I actually like nowadays, going to restaurants where there's like four things on the menu. I, I actually think this is why In-N-Out Burger is so popular. Now, we don't have one in Eugene yet, but by the Spirit of God, come on, we're going to get one someday. Come on, Jesus. Ha-ta-ta-shanda. Let's go. So we need an In-N-Out. All right. And we need a Ducks National Championship. Please, Lord. Please, please. Okay. This is how we're going to get the church to pray this January, to so pray for these things. Okay. But if you go to In-N-Out, you can get a burger. You can get a double, which is just two burgers. <laughs> You know, two patties. And they have like a secret menu, but you don't have to worry about that. But they got like a milkshake. They got a hamburger. You know, they got fries. And it's very simple. You can get a hot dog. There's like five, six, eight things, you know. And so, but you don't go there like, can I get a vegan tofu uh, shake, please? 
excuse me, is your burger made of kale and bugs? No. You got to go to some place in Eugene for that. But in and out. Hey, I love our city. Come on. But you know, it's true. They're like, you're going to love this. It's, I'm, is there kale in it? Yes. Then I won't love it. Thank you. Take that back and feed it to the rabbits. Thank you very much. So you go to In-N-Out, and I like it because there's not really that many options. So you kind of know what you're in for when you go there. Getting fat, right? Like that's what we're trying to do. There's a milkshake. There's a burger. There's fries. It's kind of simple. Anybody else with me on this? And then I find that like in time, things get messed up. Even like TV shows, if you notice this. I love TV shows. I love episodic series. What I mean by that is I like it when this episode happens and there's a plot line and it finishes and now we can move on with our life, right? But now, and I talk about this with Bethany all the time, every show that was good at one point, they turned it into a global conspiracy. There was a show that we really liked a long time ago called Prison Break. Anybody remember Prison Break, okay? What a cool idea. Every guy thinks that we would break out if we were in there, right? We all think this. The same way all of us men, we always wear sports jerseys. For the same reason, we think we'll be at an NFL game someday and we'll be there in our jersey of whatever team we support and the coach will be like, you're in. And we'll be like, I knew it. And then we, we go down there and get killed. But anyways, what was I talking about? I told you I was unfiltered. I did, huh, Tim? I said it in the beginning. So you get, you get what, you, what you get and you don't throw a fit. What was I talking about, Evie? Prison break. Thank you. So we like prison break. And it's a cool idea. Like guy goes to prison. His brother's in there. He's going to break him out, you know. So Michael Schofield, I think is his name. And Michael Schofield, he's super smart. And he gets the prison, like, blueprints tattooed on his body, okay. And he goes into jail. And then he meets all these creeps in there, you know, and whatever. And, but he, he gets out. And, like, it was so interesting. And every episode, they're figuring something out. And then he gets out of prison. But like then I think the, the network was making money with this cool show. So they start to add all these layers. And by like the fifth season, there's like a conspiracy. Did we, did, did we or did we not go to the moon? You know, is there a multinational global corporation coming in to take over? And it gets like so convoluted. And I hate it because they got rid of all of like the, the simplicity and they just made it all a bunch of extra stuff and I hate it. Now, maybe you love that kind of stuff and that's fine. Different preferences or whatever. But what I, what I realize is that sometimes options in life actually take away the joy of something simple, whether that's at a restaurant or a TV show or whatever, that thing that you, that you were looking at. John Maxwell says it this way, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. I love that. The reality is that in life, most of the things we pursue don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And they don't really matter in the grand scheme of our fulfillment that God actually has for us. There was a word in the 1400s, the word priority. And that word stood and was used for 500 years until we got into the industrial age. And then all of a sudden, this new variation of this word shows up on the scene. And it's the word that we often use in our culture, which is priorities. We pluralize this word priority. And it's, it's a, a huge oxymoron because the reality is that it doesn't exist. There is no such thing as priorities. You can't say God is number one, my family's number one, my job's number one, my fitness is number one, my emotional health is number one, my abs are number one. Like you can't have that. The reality in life, whether you like it or not, is that you can always only have one thing that is the focus of your life. And Jesus tells us what it needs to be. 
He doesn't bury the lead. He doesn't conceal. He doesn't make it complicated. He doesn't put it on the secret menu or give you a menu with 150 different types of food. He says, hey, in, in this life, here's the thing you need to focus on. And he says it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Well, what about my emotional health? It's kingdom of God. But what about my body? What about, you know, I'm supposed to be a good father. Seek the kingdom of God first. Put it above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. In other words, when you get number one right, everything else falls into place. You see, Jesus knows that you and I, we are worshiping, pursuing beings. You, you, you can't tell me that we're not worshiping beings. We're designed to pursue. We're designed to give ourselves to something. Now, maybe that, that something doesn't look like a religious thing, so you don't call it worship. But I want you to think about what we do as a population in the fall. About 50 or 60,000 of us gather together. We wear the same color and we stand and we yell and we scream at a bunch of people on a field for hours and hours and hours and hours at the top of our lung with passion. And then we rage about it the rest of the week. We hate the other side of this, right? We build cathedrals to celebrate this act of worship. We, we invest in it. We spend on it. We travel to different states to go to events if, it's, if our religion is big enough. And I'm just talking about football. We, we literally walk around and go, I'm an Oregon duck. Have you ever played for the Oregon ducks? No. <laughs> we have no connection, no agency to make any change. Like we, we say, oh, well, my, my, my cheering at Autzen really makes a difference. Well, it, it probably does in a, in a secondary sense, but are you really involved? Are you a player? Are you a coach? No, like we're just, we're just there. What's happening? Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with loving sports. I love sports. Tonight, we're going to play soccer, Joy FC. Come on, we're going to get a win. Come on, in faith. Get my knees lubricated up so we can get out there and play. Nothing wrong with it. But, but what I recognize is that our hearts yearn to like give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves, to, to lean into something. And Jesus knows that. And he says, look, you're going to be pulled in a million different directions to want to give yourself. You're going to see an ad and it's going to say, well, if you just get the abs right or you just get your, your thighs and you lose that extra couple pounds from the holiday, then you, you'll be fulfilled. And if you get better at the piano or you get a little bit better in your marriage or whatever it is and whatever pursuit, and maybe those aren't even bad things, but it's not the thing. The thing, the focus of our life, the orientation of our heart needs to be the kingdom of God. And when we have his kingdom first, which means what? The vision of our life is focused on Christ. If he were ruling my life and ruling in my community, what would that look like? That's what I keep in the forefront of my vision. That is my priority. Everything else falls into place. There's an old line that says, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. You ever heard that before? I actually would propose that it's the opposite way. I think most of us are so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. That if we were actually a little bit more heavenly minded, if we said, I live my life not for the fulfillment of my right now needs and desires and what's most comfortable and convenient for me, but I have a vision of a coming kingdom and a kingdom that hasn't been fully realized, but it's coming now and I'm a part of it. I'm an agent of subversive good. Like I'm actually a part of what God's wanting to do. And that's the focus of my life. I bet we'd make a bigger difference. I bet we'd be better husbands and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and coworkers and students. I bet if we had our eyes on Jesus, then everything else would fall into place. And so this is the margin of focus. It's saying, I'm going to begin to, on purpose, begin to move things to the side and, and say, I'm not going to let those things pull me away, but I'm going to focus on him. 
The second thing is we need to create the margin of time. You know, it's interesting in the creation story that time is the first thing that God makes sacred. It says in Genesis chapter 2, on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. And so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. You see, because of the fall, something interesting has happened. We have venerated space. We have venerated things. We have venerated substance. And yet the first thing that God made holy, which means that he set apart, was not space, but rather time. God didn't make a grove holy. He didn't build a temple on a mountain and say, this is my holy place. He said, I've taken a time, this day, out of these seven days, seven equal things, but I've lifted one and I've made it holy, which means I've set it apart. And time is the first thing that was made sacred. Human religions often are seeking to make places sacred, places holy. We, we tend to venerate space, but God said, no, time. Why? Because the space was the container for the valuable thing, which is relationship, which takes place in time. In other words, when I give myself to God and I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, you thought you weren't going to get any theology at the 1145 series. No, we're going in, getting a little bit deep right before we finish. When I give myself to the Lord, when I give myself, yes, I'm giving myself in space as the temple of the Holy Spirit, but I cannot have any relationship with him outside of time. It is that time that I enjoy and, and give to him. And this is the first thing that God made holy. But in our culture of maximization, pushing everything as fast and far as we can, the biggest house, the best job, we wear busyness like a badge of honor. We turn the lack of time into the mark of our significance. We say, I'm, I'm just busy. Oh, I'm so busy. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just so busy. I'm busy. Busy. And I caught myself doing this. I still catch myself doing this. And I realized when I'm telling people that I'm busy, I'm doing that because I'm insecure. Because what I'm actually saying is I'm important. Like I don't have time to relate or I don't have time to chat or whatever. And it's okay. I get we get busy. There's differences in different days. But I was using that as like this mark of, of honor, like I'm an important person, I'm significant, I'm, my life is so full. But I realized being busy doesn't mean you're good at life, it means you're bad at it. It means that you haven't appropriately managed or put a priority in place because you should always have sacred time set apart for that which is important and that which matters. See, we think of all time as equally the same. The hour that we spend on Netflix, the hour that we go to church, the hour that we maybe go to a kid's soccer practice. But I would propose today that actually we should do like what God did and say some time is actually set apart and holy and sacred. That maybe the time that we come on Sunday to give ourselves to the Lord and worship in full-hearted, passionate pursuit of Jesus and that we give to serving each other and gathering in the body of Christ in communion and fellowship and serving each other and being a light to a broken world around us, lost in darkness, is maybe more sacred and holy and should be set apart each week as the first portion Rather than like, well, if I can make it to church, then I'll make it as if I'm some consumer and it's the last thing that occurred to me by accident because I don't really have better options. What, do you think that maybe if you came to church and you were like, this is sacred time, that it would change a little bit of your pursuit of Jesus? That maybe Christianity would stop being this sort of like abstract thing that sort of is off here so you can go to heaven when you die and maybe it would begin to invade and you'd begin to taste the body and the blood of Jesus in kingdom living. 
and it would begin to change the everyday atmosphere around you if maybe something was a little different and things were sacred and like some time was set apart. Like what if every day we said, I'm gonna take some time in the morning and I'm gonna like push through my like fog because I'm so addicted to caffeine and I'm gonna like get to God's word and dig into the scripture and like this time is gonna be holy and maybe I'll tap into a little bit of heaven. So we talk about creating the margin of time. I don't want you to become like 17% more efficient at your job. I don't care about that. You're going to do that anyways. What I care about is that we would create a margin of time and say, God, I want to give some of my time to you, not as my last portion, but as my first sacred set apart time. And then the last margin is this, that we create the margin of rest. And this is like the cherry on the Sunday rest, because it's not talking about taking a break from what really matters. It's talking about the enjoyment of a relationship with God. This is like the pinnacle. This is the top of the mountain. This is the most important part. And you have to come back to church next week to get it because I'm not going to talk about it today. (laughs) Pastor Jake, you did that on purpose. Absolutely. We're going to do a whole message on creating the margin of rest next week. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. But then he says something interesting right after. Right after he says he's going to give us rest, he says, then take my yoke upon you. In other words, when Jesus is offering us rest, he's not saying you're not going to work. He's actually going to change your vocation and change your effort and your labor. And he says, let me teach, teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When you hear the word rest, and when we preach about this next week and talk about it, I would pray that you wouldn't hear the word rest and think about taking a break, but rather you would think about your soul being so rejuvenated and refreshed that everything that comes out of that and after that is like a 100,000 times better. Because biblical rest is not talking about you out of the game. It's actually talking about you connecting to the source of life so that your activity becomes useful to the kingdom of God. And that you, out of the abundance of the the richness of this life that Jesus promises us, life and life more abundantly, this is the kind of rest that he gives. Rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Jesus, he refreshes us often with purpose, not just indolence, not just just doing nothing. He, He brings us into fruitful ways of life and rhythms of life and rhythms for our soul so that we are constantly refreshed and we're living our life near the stream of water, that we're in those green fields and pastures and we're enjoying the life that we were meant to live as the words of the inestimable, inestimable poet uh, from Switchfoot said, uh, we were meant to live for so much more. We were meant to live for so much more. So we're going to talk about that next week, but join with me in prayer today and thank you for being here at 1145, and I'm excited about what God's doing in and through us. Jesus, I pray this morning that you would speak to us, God, that your word would penetrate our hearts, would find good soil in us, Lord, and be planted and grow forth and produce good fruit. And I pray, Lord, that today every one of us would connect with what you're doing in and through us. Lord, I pray that today we'd begin to give space for you to move and begin to create some margin and say, I'm going to begin to make space in my life. I'm going to embrace the, the margin uh, of focus. I'm going to put your kingdom first. Let, let, Lord, my worship for you, my pursuit of you be the thing, the thing, not something in the midst, something in the mix, but the thing. 
the essential thing. And Lord, I pray that we would begin to make time sacred and create that margin of time and say, I'm going to begin to set aside time for God. I'm going to set aside time for what is sacred in my life. I'm going to set aside that time and make it holy. I'm not going to look at all time as equal, but there's going to be some things that are more important, a priority. Because of my focus, my time goes into that thing. And then, Lord, I pray that as we prepare next week to learn about the margin of rest, that, Lord, you would move in our hearts and prepare us to understand what it means to rest in you, be refreshed, rejuvenated, to achieve kingdom purposes that you have for us, Lord. God, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quick, I'm going to let you out of here in just a minute, but if you bow your head and close your eyes, I just want to make an invitation. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, uh, that is the number one thing, the number one step to take. And Jesus came to planet Earth 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect life. He offered himself as a sacrifice on a Roman cross for your sins, for my sins. He makes us right with God. But I want to speak to you in terms that we understand in 2024. We understand that there is always somebody driving. There's always somebody in control. There's always somebody who's leading. And maybe in your life, that's you. Or maybe in your life that's fear or it's somebody, somebody who's abused you or manipulated or you, you or whatever it is and you can't let go. And the call of Christ to you is to join his kingdom and to give him that lordship, that leadership of your life. When you receive the king of this kingdom, you also receive all the benefits of this kingdom. And the benefits of this kingdom are that he saves you from your sins. He forgives you. He makes you right with God. He gives you eternal life and he invites you to experience rest and peace and joy. So if you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to join his kingdom. I want to give him my life. I just want you to raise your hand. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. Just raise your hand so I can see and we're all going to pray together. Thank you. Awesome. Anybody else? Awesome. 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 Thank you. Awesome. 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 Thank you. So good. Thank you. Awesome. All over this room. Lots of people. So cool. All right. Pray this prayer with me. We're all going to pray it together. Dear Jesus, I give you my life, all the good and all the bad. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be in God's family. I receive you today and I give you my life in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's celebrate that today.